0: This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's the next chapter in the legend of King Arthur. You'll see why you should be very nice to a person asking you for money on the street. After all, he could secretly be a wizard who can shoot fire from his hands. Then, on the Creature of the Week, if you don't know by now that you shouldn't trust a creature in the wilderness that wants a drink and a tickle fight, well, I can't do anything else for you. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, episode 27A The Violence Inherent in the System. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular tales you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you may not have heard, but really should. Today, we pick back up on the legend of King Arthur. You don't need to have heard the previous episodes to listen today. But if you're interested in the backstory, you can find that in episodes 6A through 6C. The story of Yvain in 1A through C, and the supplemental Merlin episode really don't factor in here, but they're interesting. This story takes place around the 6th century AD, in England. It's a post-Roman England. Remember, the fall of the Western Empire was in 476 AD, and the current residents of the island are the Celtic Britons, spelled with an O. The Anglo-Saxons, the people that will eventually take over the island, are also there though they aren't a huge threat at the moment. They still invade from time to time, but today's episode will focus almost completely on England's internal squabbles. So previously on the story of King Arthur, Arthur was given away when he was mere hours old, at the prompting of the wizard Merlin. He was given in secret to one of Uther Pendragons, Arthur's father's, knights, and raised as his son. Uther Pendragon died just two years later and this threw England into chaos as several barons and petty kings vied for the throne. The bloodshed went on for well over a decade, until Merlin knew Arthur was old enough to ascend to the throne. Everyone agreed to let God show them who the next king should be, by way of a special sword and stone. Some versions say that it was a sword and an anvil atop a rock, but they all agree that whosoever could draw the sword out would be the next high king of England. One day, while on his way to fetch his brother Kay's sword, Arthur stumbled upon the sword and the stone, pulled it out from the rock in secret, not realizing the significance, and took it to his brother, who was waiting at a tournament. We're going to pick up on the story less than one year later. In less than one year, King Arthur's reign was a disaster. That issue, however, was rapidly being solved by fire blazing from the wizard's hands. The Archbishop yelled fiercely that the assembled army of rebel kings were excommunicated from the church, while the wizard, Merlin, shot fire from his hands. From his hands? Arthur had only heard stories of vague prophecies coming from the Middle-Aged magician, and of him enchanting the stones to build Stonehenge. He had never heard of him calling forth fire to decimate an army. This was unbelievable. Even with a wizard, though, Arthur might still die here, He had ruled England as High King for almost a year now, and he had done absolutely nothing. He sat on his horse, awaiting the wizard's cue for him and his small guard to charge out of the fort. Arthur needed to escape the keep and meet up with his knights, but first he would have to cut through the rebel army assembled outside. Next to him was his foster brother, Kay, and a handful of other knights that completed his personal guard. Behind them were the people, the peasants that had armed themselves with whatever they could find. They didn't have armor, and on the other side of the drawbridge, they would find themselves facing over 1,000 trained knights. The odds were not in their favor. Young King Arthur sat, sweating and grinding his teeth, his hand reaching and gripping his sword. It was the one he had drawn from the stone to become king. There had been so much promise when he was crowned. He only wanted to be a good, understanding, and kind ruler. The reality, however was that he had been chased out by lesser kings who had shown loyalty to Uther, though obviously not Arthur. They had refused to be ruled by someone of such low blood, a beardless boy, and they had raised arms against him. He reflected on this disappointing chain of events, while the wizard burned rebel knights left and right. Winning the throne is easy when a wizard helps you do it with a magical sword from a stone. Keeping the throne is not, especially when said wizard disappears right after your coronation leaving you to figure things out for yourself. Okay, so now we'll back up and talk about how Arthur went from being the god-ordained king of destiny to being besieged by rebels in a city. Arthur had never dreamed of being king. He had been raised the second son of a low-born knight. His older brother, Kay, the one now sitting on his horse next to Arthur, had received all the focus. Kay was a year older and the biological son of Sir Ector, it wasn't until Arthur pulled the sword from the stone that Ector revealed the truth. That Kay and Arthur were brothers, but not by blood. The wizard, Merlin, had given the infant Arthur to the knight when the boy was just hours old. Even Sir Ector didn't know who Arthur's true parents were. Ector only knew he was not one of them. As the first act of Arthur's kingship, before anyone else knew Arthur had pulled the sword from the stone, Sir Ector requested that Kay be made Seneschal of England basically steward over England. It was probably the second most powerful position in the kingdom, and their father made Arthur promise that no matter how mean, annoying, and oafish Kay became, Arthur had to keep him around. Arthur said, you're not exactly selling it, but sure. Sir Ector, wanting everyone to see Arthur was to be the new king, had arranged for a crowd to come gather around the stone, so Arthur could make public his removal of the sword. The archbishop announced that God had shown his choice, and that this young Arthur was to be the next king. Remember, no one knew Arthur was the son of Uther. Everyone thought that he was just the son of some knight. It was obvious to all that after years of bloody civil war following the death of King Uther, God had, at last, revealed who England's next king would be. And that was when the problems had begun. The barons and attendants chimed in. Arthur, is it? That's your name. That's nice that you did that, but let's not get too hasty in calling this king king just yet. There are people riding him from all around England to try their hand at the sword. If you're the true king, Arthur, you have no reason to fear. Wait a while and let the other people have their shot. Show them that you're the true king. This made sense to Arthur, and he thought that he should start his reign off with graciousness. He agreed to wait a few weeks for the other people to come and try three weeks turned into four, and four turned into seventeen. Eventually Merlin and the Archbishop of Canterbury insisted on the coronation. It was obvious that the boy was God's choice. No one else could take the sword from the stone. The pointless delay had served one purpose, though. At least for the barons, they saw that they could bully the young king around. they started salivating when his wizard advisor, the magician who had built Stonehenge and helped the previous kings drive off the Saxons, left shortly after Arthur's coronation. A few months later, they started sharpening their knives when Arthur chose to travel around to the different castles and kingdoms of England, celebrating his coronation and demonstrating his authority. As far as I can glean, this was customary of medieval high kings. Well, Arthur had made the mistake of thinking that he was safe in his own land. He only took a small group of his closest knights with him. They were in the city of Carleon, in Wales, when a messenger interrupted their feast. After riding his horse to a lather to reach them in time, he warned of six kings and barons that it had assembled troops against Arthur. People who had said that they were content with the magical sword selection process were very much not content with the magical sword selection process. The ability to pull a sword from a stone is apparently no basis for a system of government. Nearly 1,000 knights in all, and various other squires, pikemen, and crossbowmen were gathering and they would be outside Carley in a mere days. There was a frantic rush as they prepared, and they ensured the keep and the surrounding hillfort would hold out in the event of a siege. Still, Arthur only had a few hundred knights with him. He sent word to London for more knights, but they wouldn't be able to make it in time. Arthur was dismayed. He knew how something like this went. The last High King of England to be besieged in Wales had been burned alive in his own castle. The armies of the North arrived, led by King Lot, who demanded that Arthur, the low-born, beardless child, abdicate and surrender himself immediately. Arthur had decided to hold out hope for his backup knights, and so the siege began. That was when Merlin came riding up on his horse. The wizard was kind of like Gandalf, in that he just rides off, and no one knows where he goes for long stretches of time. But he shows up right when he's needed most. He rode all the way to King Lot's tent. The king of Lothian and Orkney sneered at the wizard. He didn't trust this charlatan. Three kings had trusted him, Vortigern, Arthur's uncle, and Arthur's father, and three kings had died. Lot just knew Merlin had engineered Arthur's ascent to the throne, but he received the wizard anyway. Merlin tried to reason with the man, but Lot was convinced that this boy, Arthur, only made England weak. He laughed in Merlin's face and told the wizard that he didn't want to make peace with Arthur. King Lot wanted to humiliate him, make an example of him. He told the wizard that he could pass through the siege and enter the hill fort. King Lot told Merlin that he could go and die with his young king. And now we're back to where we started. Arthur and a few hundred of his knights were arranged behind the gate, ready to go. Arthur looked next to him and saw Kay. He was grateful for the man. In the years since Arthur had become king, Kay had grown from a mean, obnoxious bully to a mean, obnoxious, fiercely loyal friend. And perhaps the first time in his life, Arthur was glad Kay was his brother. Even though he was intolerable a lot of the time, Arthur appreciated Kay staying by his side, even when it meant likely going to his death at the blades of an attacking army. They could hear Merlin on the wall, shouting, raining down fire, and then came the signal. Kay nodded to the men on either side, who unbarred the large door. They wasted no time before galloping out. The knights and warriors laying siege to the fort had been pushed far back by Merlin's magic missiles, and they were in disarray. Arthur and his knights charged ahead. They need not necessarily win, only escape. Once they met with the rest of Arthur's knights, crossbowmen, and other warriors, they would be able to put up a fight in earnest. For now, though, they just had to survive. Arthur could see Merlin standing atop the wall, fire still arcing out from his arms, burning the knights below even from afar clearing arthur's path the wizard's range however was limited and eventually arthur would need to fight arthur looked down at the sword the one he had drawn from the stone merlin had enchanted it instructing him only to use it if the situation was dire it could cut through steel iron bone everything as arthur looked ahead and saw the knights of the rebel kings closing ranks in front of him he deemed that this was the dire situation he drew the sword. There isn't much consistency between sources as to where Excalibur originated. Arthur's famous magic sword. The earliest versions that explicitly mention Excalibur say that it's the sword he drew from the stone. Sir Thomas Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur names two swords Excalibur, the one he drew from the stone and the one he got from the Lady of the Lake, but we'll get into that later. The Lady of the Lake version is the most widely accepted version today and it gives us the opportunity to talk about the Lady of the Lake. So that's the one I'm going to go with. The one that he has now, the one that he drew from the stone, is just a magic sword. Back to the battle, Arthur rode out in front, using the sword to cut through anyone or anything in his path, much like Sigmund did in episode 3C with his magic sword. The knights followed, and it looked like they might actually make it. Arthur galloped ahead, pressing through the worst of the battle, Knights attacked heavily from all sides, but Arthur kept advancing until a lance hit his chest. Though it glanced off his armor, the blow caught him in the shoulder, throwing him off his horse. His magical sword flew away and stuck in the ground just out of reach. As it turns out, King Lot was the one that had hit him, and he jumped off his horse and towered over Arthur, who was laying on the ground. The young King Arthur looked back and realized that he was separated from his guard by a wall of Lot's knights, who held them at bay yield the petty king lot demanded of the young high king arthur from behind his helmet arthur narrowed his eyes he hadn't come this far just to surrender he paused for a second and then scrambled for his sword lot rolled his eyes this child needed to be taught a lesson the king picked up his spear and used it to smack arthur across his armored head before he was able to reach his sword arthur's ears were ringing and he was dazed and he saw King Lot approach him with his spear in hand. Arthur expected a quick death, but that wasn't what King Lot had in mind. He wanted to make this lowborn imposter pay. He had won the throne by some wizard's trickery, but he would lose it by the swords of men who wouldn't consent to be ruled by some callow, beardless boy. He used his spear to beat the young man, not stab him, and then he took out his sword and cut and kicked and wailed on Arthur. Nothing lethal, but it was all extremely painful. Arthur was in full armor, so while being hit with a spear and sword really hurt, it wasn't immediately fatal. Lot didn't want to kill the boy, yet. Just beat him into submission, capture him, and put an end to his short, weak reign. From horseback, Kay and the others could see Lot wailing on someone while his men watched, and they redoubled their efforts to reach him and save their high king. Bleeding and bruised inside his armor, Arthur looked up. He wouldn't yield, but he didn't know how much longer he could go on. That's when he heard the crowd. When the knights had galloped out of the keep with Arthur, the waiting rebel knights had immediately put all their focus on the few hundred men with Arthur. Either willfully or not, they had completely ignored the angry mob that had joined the young king from the besieged city, charging behind, much slower, and on foot. They ran out with their makeshift clubs and knives, several times the size of either army, and took the rebel knights from behind. They stabbed and bludgeoned horses, destroying the rebel knights' significant advantage. They also grabbed the unsuspecting knights off their horses, ganged up on them, and killed them. The mob not only took a significant amount of attention away from fighting Arthur's guards, but like the Ewoks during the Battle of Endor, this ragtag local army was somehow beating their much better armed, much better organized enemies with improvised weapons. It just wasn't as cute as the Battle of Endor. Standing over Arthur, breathing heavily, Lot looked up, startled by the noise. King Arthur's guard was close to pushing through the wall of nearby rebel knights. But the sea of angry peasants with knives somehow clawing through his trained knights was even more troubling. Lot tried to wrench the struggling Arthur out by his armor, to capture him, but he panicked as the young king's knights began breaking through to rescue Arthur. As it turns out, they were much closer than King Lot thought, and before he could turn, Kay had broken through and buried his sword deep in Lot's shoulder. Blood spewed through the gaps in Lot's armor, and he staggered backwards. The enemy surrounding them took up arms, and Arthur, though it hurt to move, struggled to his sword, stood up, and fought as many rebel knights as he could, before collapsing in pain. Luckily, he collapsed just as the rebel army was beginning to flee, Kay ran to him so he wasn't trampled, helping his foster brother to a horse. They didn't turn back to the city of Carlian. The townspeople were all but literally tearing the rebel knights apart, but King Arthur's guard couldn't risk the army regrouping. No, they had to ride to London and the rest of King Arthur's army. Arthur, while happy to be alive, felt each painful step of his horse ride back to safety. In the end, 11 kings joined Lot's Rebellion. When Arthur returned to London, he called a war council. A change was happening in Arthur. He was sore, swollen, and covered in purple and blue bruises. But the fires of that brief battle had tempered him, burning away the reluctant, forgiving child. He had basically fallen into this rule by accident, and he had merely coasted along. Feeling his bruised, everything, He knew that if he wanted to keep this land his land from falling once more into bloody leaderless civil war then he would need to fight for it the boy that left for Carleon with his coronation party train never returned in his place was a leader who knew what he must do to be strong for his people standing on the wall he saw a familiar horse approaching and was relieved it was merlin arthur may have resolved now but he still lacked a solid plan. Merlin had survived the battle after shooting fires from the walls of Carleon, and he made his way to London as quickly as possible. When he got in, he eyed the young king, immediately noticing the difference. The battle had been a victory after all, it seemed. Merlin told Arthur that they couldn't just engage them. Arthur's armies were too weak. They would need to ally with two kings in Brittany, Ban and Boers. Ban and Boers were two kings in France, They helped Arthur out significantly with extra troops to fight the rebel army, but I'm not going to get into their backstories right now. King Ban is Lancelot's father, and we'll absolutely be going over his story in the near future. But for right now, all you need to know is that Ban and Bors are kings that become Arthur's allies. There were small battles here and there, but nothing decisive. Arthur fought out front. He faced danger, but he earned the respect of his knights and the kings with him. The war to keep his title of High King helped him grow from a soft, trusting boy to a man. Soon, he could fight alongside the best of his knights, truly leading the charges. Finally, by way of Merlin's prophesying, they were able to know where their enemy was, and to force the rebel kings into a final confrontation. They, honorably, attacked at night, and spread chaos and confusion through the enemy camp. Even with the element of surprise, though, they were evenly matched. There was one fight Arthur was looking for, since the day outside of Carleon where he had been beaten so badly by the rebel king Lot, But he was disappointed on the day of the final battle. Almost as soon as the battle started, Kay threw a spear at Lot, and it wounded him so badly that he had to leave the fight, and the other kings led his knights. It was an insane slaughter, and nearly everyone at one point or another loses his horse, finds an enemy knight, shoves their sword through the enemy knight's faceplate, and gets a new horse. As the battle progressed, Arthur sent word for Ban and Boars to attack they had tens of thousands of fresh warriors hidden in the forest that the rebel kings didn't know about. With the losses they had already experienced and a whole new army flooding out of the forest, the resolve of the rebel army melted and they fled. Arthur saw Merlin running up to him on the battlefield. Surprisingly, Merlin told him not to pursue the rebel army. Merlin was glad Arthur was angry and the wizard liked that he wasn't the pliant young boy that had pulled the sword from the stone a year and a half ago. But Merlin told Arthur that to press it further would be madness. Arthur had come with 120,000 warriors, and now he was down to just 15,000. He had won, but only just so. Besides, the rebel kings would soon be getting bad news from the north. The Saxons, the omnipresent boogeymen, decided to take advantage and invade. If the rebel armies didn't want to return to the looted, burned remains of their homes, they would make a peace agreement and head back north. Even though Arthur really wanted a rematch with Lot. He agreed that it would be better to have the formerly rebel kings fighting the Saxons, than to have to replace them and send his own people up north. Looking out on the blood-soaked dirt of the battlefield, with its thousands upon thousands dead, Arthur took a deep breath. He was now the complete and undisputed ruler of England, and he had ended the violence that plagued the land since the death of King Uther, well over ten years ago. The rebel kings did offer peace, and Arthur accepted. The kings returned north to salvage what they could from the invading Saxons. Arthur returned to London, and upon his entry to the city, he was met in the street by a smelly peasant, wearing woolly furs, and carrying several dead geese by their necks. This peasant, of course, stopped the king and asked for a present. King Arthur said, one, no, I'm not giving you a present, and two, get out of my way, churl being an archaic insult for an impolite person of low birth. The peasant wouldn't move though, and so King Arthur asked his knights to kindly remove this peasant from the city with a small 30-year detour in the dungeons. Knights Brasius and Ulfan only laughed though. King Arthur turned to them, laughing, really? In front of the peasant? They said, it's, it's Merlin. He does this sort of thing way too often. Arthur looked back to see the peasant with a mostly toothless grin. It was Merlin. As we've talked about before, Merlin was absolutely a conjurer of cheap tricks, and he often traveled around in magical disguises to keep from being noticed. In the blink of an eye, he turned back into the middle-aged wizard. He told Arthur that he was leaving for a time, but the next time Merlin came to him, the wizard would be in disguise, so look out for that. Whenever King Arthur needed him, Merlin would be there, with that, the wizard transformed into a different peasant, nodded at his king, and melted into the crowd. A small amount of time passed, and just as Arthur was getting settled in his king, news of more violence arrived. This time in North Wales, another king was causing trouble, trying to conquer his fellow petty kings. He had King Leon de Grance under siege, who I’m just going to call King Leo from here on out. Arthur rode up with a contingent of knights and put the antagonistic king and his armies to flight. Members will eventually recognize this character as the antagonist from Members Episode 3, the Cloak of Beards. This all takes place before that, but in the coming episodes, he will grow in power until he actually begins to conquer surrounding petty kings. After he conquers someone, he has a ritual where he shaves the king's beard off and adds it to his completely not gross cloak made of the beard hair of defeated kings. Time goes on until there's one beard he just has to add to his cloak, that of King Arthur. In this story, his name is King Ryans, and he's not a sorcerer or a giant, just someone with a weird hobby and a very questionable fashion sense. Seeing as everything was settled here, Arthur made to leave, but King Leo insisted that Arthur stay the night. That evening, King Arthur was introduced to someone who would forever be associated with his name. A woman who, in some sources, was wise, kind, and intelligent, and in others was an unscrupulous harlot whose affair tore the round table apart. Here, she's just Princess Guinevere, the stunningly beautiful daughter of King Leo. Arthur talked to her when he was near her that evening, and when he was away, he could hardly take his eyes off her. The timing wasn't right, though. King Leo, while he was happy King Arthur took a liking to his daughter, was going to wait this one out. Everyone but Merlin thought he was of relatively low birth. And though King Arthur had managed to keep his title longer than anyone thought he could the number of kings that wanted him dead was still in the double digits. Arthur, for his part, also felt that it was too soon. Though he liked Guinevere, he couldn't be married quite yet. Marriage was a great way to build a strong alliance, and seeing as he had only recently reached a very tenuous peace, he couldn't afford to spend that bargaining chip quite yet. He was reluctant to leave the next day, but he made his way back to London to resume putting his kingdom back together. his way back, he stopped off to stay the night at Carleon. Remember, that's where the attack led by King Lot had taken place, when King Arthur was out with his coronation party train. To King Arthur's surprise, though, there, in Carleon, he met Morgas, the wife of King Lot, along with her four children. Lot's young wife was very beautiful. King Lot was away up north, tending to the issue of the Saxons, and he had sent his wife on an errand. She was to go to the court of King Arthur with her sons and infiltrate it gaining information that would help her husband, information like whether or not Arthur was still mad about the rebellion, and if he would seek retribution. She thought that she was lucky to find Arthur here, by chance, in some small city away from his people. It was quiet here, and she felt like she could get close. Arthur consented to see her and her sons that evening in the keep, inviting them to dine with him and the other nobility. The young king appeared relaxed, and completely unconcerned about King Lot. Morgas observed the way Arthur looked at her. She noticed that he was handsome, strong, and charming. He was the powerful young king who had bested her husband and his ten allies. Arthur was equally intrigued, enthralled by Morgause's beauty, wit, and confidence. Of course, all this went right over the head of Morgause's sons. They would eventually become knights at the round table, but had they known what would happen later that night well, they might not have been quite so eager to serve the man in just a couple of years. Late that night, Arthur was pacing the stone floor of his room. He had spent the evening in conversation with the woman, and now that he was alone, he couldn't stop thinking about her. He tried laying down, staring into the darkness, but he just couldn't take it. He shook with nervous energy. Jumping back out of bed, Arthur slipped out of his room and down the hall. He knew that he had been attacked in this very keep, and that if he continued down this hall, it might spark the war anew. Still, he had to see her again. He found her room and knocked quietly on the thick wooden door. Queen Morgas, the wife of King Lot, opened it and looked shocked, but only for a moment. She kissed the young king and pulled him into her room. Arthur was back to his room before sunrise and slept very late the next day. The next evening, Arthur again stopped by the queen's room. And the night after that, and the one after that. All told, they stayed a whole month at Carlan. Eventually, they had to leave. Having one quick stop turned into a month-long stay with your former enemy's wife, a woman that Arthur seemed on surprisingly good terms with, well, it might start to attract suspicion. Morgos was convinced that Arthur meant no harm to her, So she returned north, giving up all pretense of London. Arthur resumed the incredibly important work of repairing his kingdom. He had to get back, and he pushed his horse hard on the way home. Arthur began to feel anxious about his month with the woman, though. For some reason, the dark corners of his mind cried out against what he had done. It wasn't merely being with another man's wife. It was something deeper, more disturbing. And I would imagine Arthur had no idea why he felt this way. Queen Morgas was the daughter of the former Duke of Cornwall, and was born before her father died and her mother remarried. King Arthur was the son of Uther Pendragon, and his wife, the Lady and future Queen, Igraine. Igraine had been heartbroken to give the infant Arthur away to be raised by Sir Ector, as this was still a secret known only to Merlin. Arthur was unfamiliar with his true family tree. He didn't know that his mother had actually been married to the Duke of Cornwall before later marrying Uther Pendragon. His mother had had children with the Duke, one of whom was a girl named Morgas, the Morgas who married King Lot of Orkney to become Queen Morgas, the queen who Arthur had visited over the past month. Yes, the woman with whom he had spent several nights was his half-sister. Worse, Though they might not even know it yet, she was pregnant with Arthur's child. In the same way that Arthur was conceived, Arthur's son Mordred was conceived. Arthur went in secret to the wife of his enemy, and she became pregnant. Instead of siring a noble high king and secret heir to his throne, as Uther had done, Arthur had sired a dark shadow of himself. Mordred will become the villain of the Arthurian legends, and in the next episode, we'll see young... Honorable King Arthur, faced with the grim choice, should he or should he not commit an atrocity in an effort to forestall the doom that this child represents? Of course, Arthur didn't know any of this. He only knew he was being plagued by horrible dreams, dreams in which he found himself on the moors at night, screams coming from a nearby village. Fully armored with his magical sword, he would rush to the village, only to find bodies strewn everywhere. Knights, nobles, peasants, and clergy, all dead in the street. Above him hovered a giant griffin, which was a winged beast, with the body and back legs of a lion, and the head and talons of an eagle. It's on the podcast show art. Behind him, he would hear the roar of a dragon spewing fire and poison. With a deep breath, he would turn and fight. The griffin attacked from the air, tearing at his armor and eventually his back. The dragon slashed at him from the front and heated his steel to a bright orange, burning Arthur horribly and cooking him inside his armor. Eventually, he would kill both beasts, blood streaming from the remaining areas that weren't horribly burnt. Each night, he killed the dragon and griffin. But each night, he also breathed his last while lying on their torn corpses. Arthur was haunted by this dream each night on the way back to London until he simply dreaded going to sleep. One day, he and his men stopped by a forest. Arthur decided that a hunting excursion would take his mind off the nightmares. That's when he saw the Magnificent Heart, or basically a deer. He locked eyes with the deer, hesitating only for a moment. It was long enough, however, and in an instant the beast bolted into the woods. Arthur spurred his exhausted horse after them in pursuit. Rolled by the chase, he wasn't thinking about Morgas or the horrible dreams. He inhaled the clean forest air and guided his horse along the best path. This was just what he needed. Galloping toward a clearing, Arthur felt the earth drop out from beneath his steed. He was thrown clear from the horse and hit the ground, his hard steel armor folding inward and bruising him. He rolled about three times, finally splashing to a halt in a river. Head ringing. Arthur struggled up in the stream to see his horse lying dead on the ground. That's just fantastic, he said to himself. The horse was dead and the heart was nowhere to be seen. Arthur sighed and collapsed on the bank, staring up at the sky. He had ridden his horse so hard for so long that its heart had just stopped. Worse, he felt his unnamed dread and anxiety creeping back into his mind. Arthur heard one of his attendants riding up before the man's face filled his vision as he lay on the bank. Arthur said he was okay. Just go fetch another horse. I'm not riding back with you. I'll just be here. After the attendant rode off, Arthur pulled himself off the bank and sat against a large shaded tree looking out across the river. At least this was better than the endless riding back to London. And while they would lose part of a day, it, then he heard something. Hounds. He was pretty deep in the forest, but Arthur thought that he maybe had inadvertently traveled into the land of some lord. After being thrown from his horse, bruised, bloodied, and in a sour mood, the last thing he wanted was to deal with some sycophantic underling. He pressed himself closer to the tree, deeper into its shadow. With his back to the bark, he peered around the trunk, expecting to see a large group of hounds chasing an animal through the forest. Instead, it was simultaneously the oddest, most horrifying creature King Arthur had ever seen. It stood twice as tall as a horse, and about three times as long. It had the head and neck of a great serpent, the body of a leopard, the haunches of a lion, and the hooves of a deer. As it prowled down the path, its belly made the sound of hounds barking, and it was coming straight for King Arthur, who pressed his back farther into the tree, gripped his sword, and said a small prayer and that's where we'll leave everything this week the creature as you may know is the famous monster known as the Questing beast next week you'll hear its tragic unsavory origins and you'll also see that Arthur apparently wasn't paying attention at all when Merlin said he would come in another form I had to lay a lot of groundwork this week to bridge the gap between the sword and the stone in here. That being said, next week's episode is so, so good. There's a lot of build-up in this one, but it all comes to fruition. It was a lot of fun to write. I want to say thanks to J.H.X.T, Carrie Rabbit, B.D. Kedge, Strictly Savage, Zelsey, Diggeriz01, hug, hug, hug. it's just HGH three times in a row, Cluggle, Pentastic, Mr. David Hampton, Super Sleuth, and XVB07172 further reviews on iTunes. Seriously, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and it's great to hear all your feedback. If you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, you can check it out at itunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing going on on the site. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so for less than $5 per month. That's less than the price of a pillowcase cover with the face of actor Nicholas Cage staring longingly at you. Membership comes with access to source pack ebooks and extra episodes that won't creepily watch you while you sleep. If you're interested, you can check out support.mythpodcast.com. Also, I'm on Twitter at, at @mythpodcast and Facebook at facebook.com/mythpodcast. The creature this week is the Mahaha. From Inuit mythology. The Mahaha lives in the cold northern areas of the Canadian wilderness. He's a blue wiry man of about normal size who travels through the snow wearing just pants. He's extremely putrid and cold to the touch. You probably don't want to touch him. He however would very much like to touch you. He's another creature that likes to tickle people to death. This one is actually pretty gruesome though. He's able to tickle people to death because his fingers are long and his nails are razor sharp, and I'm calling it This is officially the worst way to go He'll laugh maniacally while he does it with a wide grin on his face Sources call him evil though. It's unclear whether he actually seeks to kill people He is fairly unintelligent and it could just be that he really likes tickling Gets carried away and before he knows it the person is dead, you know like Lenny and the Dead Mouse from Of Mice and Men Anyone who's found dead in the snow with a wide, eerie grin on his or her face is thought to be killed by the Mahaha. Sidebar, how many people are dying in the snow with grins on their faces? Like I said, he's not too bright, so if you run into him while wandering alone through the remote, frozen Canadian wilderness, just ask him if he wants to get a drink before your tickle fight. Go to a fast-running river and invite him to take the first drink. When he does, kick him into the water and he'll be swept away then resume the marginally better fate of wandering alone through the remote, frozen wilderness. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.